I believe in this work so much because, you know, like all of us, I see how this could be so instrumental to returning dialogue and civility and compromise to politics. You know, having people who put service first as opposed to self or to party. And and that's just, uh, it's, it's so worth doing. That's the voice of John Walters, an Air Force veteran and leadership coach who serves as a facilitator for our Answering the Call program. I'm Dr. Max Clow, host of the New Politics Podcast, and today I'm excited to lift up the voice and experience of one of the remarkable servant leaders who makes the programming that we offer through the New Politics Leadership Academy so effective and powerful. John Walters is based in Spokane, Washington, and he served in the Air Force for 22 years. He spent many years as an education and training manager at the Personnel Recovery Agency. In that role, his job was to train soldiers on how to handle the pressures of isolation and separation, whether that involved finding oneself alone behind enemy lines or being taken into captivity by enemy forces. In 2015, John volunteered for a four-month assignment doing this work on the ground in Afghanistan. John transitioned into civilian life by training to become a certified Goldman emotional intelligence coach, and most relevant to our conversation today, John volunteers his time to serve as a facilitator for our Answering the Call program that invites servant leaders to look inwards and get clear about whether or not they feel called to serve again through politics. In our conversation today, John talks about his path to serving in the Air Force and shares a bit about his experiences with the Personnel Recovery Agency and his work as a coach. And finally, we discuss what brought him to serve as an ATC facilitator and why he thinks this work that we are doing here at New Politics is important. John is a remarkable servant leader, and he's at the front lines of our efforts to recruit more servant leaders to run for office. I'm excited to lift up his voice today. John Walters, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Glad to have you with us. Thank you, Max. It's a it's an honor and a privilege to be with you. Awesome. So I have I have the question I always begin my podcast with, which is, what's your earliest memory of learning the value of service? Ooh, uh, yeah, that's a great question, Max. And I would say that I learned uh, not not necessarily on a <clears throat> awareness basis. But certainly by being around my parents, and in specific, my father, who is a Methodist pastor, and then learning more about his journey uh, and his dedication to congregants, you know, to his, to the folks that he served. But also, as I grew older, learning about his dedication to racial equity and, uh, <clears throat> and the fact that he had to leave Mississippi where his family was and where he had grown up had to leave Mississippi uh, because he had signed a document uh, in 1962 that called uh, for the church to avoid segregation when they were moving that way. And so, yeah, my, my parents for sure. And, and then my, his brother, who was also a pastor in Mississippi and who also fled Mississippi during the, the brain drain of that time, um, you know, that 
they they're big big shoes to fill. Yeah, I did not realize you were a preacher's kid with that yeah. kind of background. Fascinating. And did you have brothers and sisters? Tell tell me a little bit more about your life growing up, what it was like. Yeah, I was the only one of us born in Mississippi, and then my parents left uh, when I was, uh, I think, 18 months or two years old. My sister was born in Indiana, uh, one sister who's two years younger, and one brother who's seven years younger. He was also born in Indiana, uh, but I was the only one born in the South, uh, where my and parents- where in Mississippi? Had... Where were they living in Mississippi? <clears throat> uh we were living in Natchez, Mississippi, which is on the river, I believe. I've been there once, I think, when I was a teenager. <laughs> um, but they, they had grown up in the South. My mom and dad both grew up in the South and planned to live there uh, in the South. But the call for them to do the right thing and to get out of the, seg- the, the land of segregation was strong, you know. And, and they were... My dad was recruited away by the, the the Methodist Church in Indiana at that point, basically. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's a powerful life experience. Yeah, there, there's there's a book about it, uh, and you can actually look up the document they signed. They wrote a statement opposing segregation. The statement is called "Born of Conviction." The, the pastor, yeah, who who wrote this, named the statement "Born of Conviction." It was only supposed to go to the bishop and to the church, and it was released to the press, and all their names were released. 28 uh, pastors, all but two left Mississippi, you know, within the next year. Yeah. Wow. That's uh, incredible. So you you ended up choosing to serve in the Air Force. And help me understand. When, when did you know you were going to do that? How did you make the decision? And just kind of what led to the, the entering the path of the military? Uh, a failed year of college. <laughs> not, not ready for the college path. Again, looking back at my parents who were very smart people, very high achievers, uh, and thinking that that was my path. You know, I would graduate high school like they did. I would go to college. I would meet my future wife, you know, that I would be married to forever. And that was the path. And that was a lot of assumptions on my part. Like my parents never said, this is the way you'll go. Like I, I understand some parents can be a little directive in that way. Mine were never that way. That was all weight that I put on myself. So I went to a small Methodist college. We got a huge break in tuition in Indiana and really didn't do well academically, was far more interested in drinking beer and dating and, you know, doing all the social stuff and not so much the collegiate stuff. My sister, who was much better academically than I was, was going to be coming up and I knew my parents couldn't really afford to keep me, uh, you know, struggling along. So I was looking for some way to be independent and the military was that. And so I researched and decided, you know, at that time, knowing very little about the military, decided the Air Force was the one that was the most uh, appealing, I guess, for for whatever reason, back in the early 80s when I joined the Air Force. Uh, but I look back at it as a great career. Yeah, absolutely a great career. But got into it because I... I I really wasn't succeeding anywhere else at that time. Interesting. Interesting. What'd your parents say about entering the military? Uh, I I think they were glad that I made a decision 
to do something. I was pretty lost at that time, actually, Max. You know, I would love to say that, you know, I had this, it, that was just my, my way of getting to it. I ended up having a great career, but I, I got there because I was a pretty lost kid at that point. Yeah. You said you had a great experience with that. Tell us a little bit more about what what you do and how do you think the experience shaped you? Yeah, I think it provided, you know, what it provides for so many people like myself who <clears throat> I'm, I'm not a technical guy. Like I'm not a guy who, who wants to be a, a welder or, um, you know, I want to be a mechanic or any of those things. Those things don't come naturally to me. But what the Air Force did was they gave me a job. My first job in the Air Force was an aircraft maintenance guy, and I wasn't particularly good at it. But I built relationships. I got to go see places. Um, my first my first duty station was Bergstrom Air Force Base, which is now Bergstrom Austin International Airport. If you've ever flown into Austin, you landed the old Bergstrom Air Force Base. Uh, there, I think there's one or two buildings that survived the transition from being an Air Force Base to uh, an international airport, a large international airport now. I think it's about 20 years it's been operating there or more. But it got to go to Italy on, on a on a, on a TDY and participate in that exercise. And so all these things just started rolling forward, you know, and I, th the latter part of my career is what really kicked me into gear with and brought me to where I am today, I would say. About 10 years, I cross-trained into intelligence and, and was and found out that this world had been hidden from me that was like, okay, this is where I fit. Yeah. This is kind of my thing you know i'm more of a liberal arts guy and so intelligence was problem solving it was adaptation you know it, it kind of it keeps you busy because things are changing all the time and you're doing assessments and i i, I had some unique opportunities once i cross-trained into intel and that that was when i really hit you know if you think of a crawl walk run of a life unfolding that's, that's when the run really mm -hmm. really uh began <clears throat> right and it was 22 years how long were you in the in, in the air force for 22 years yeah 22 years wow long time yeah and i know that you spent many years as the education and training manager for the joint personnel recovery agency which i've loved talking a little bit to you about that. This is about training the soldiers how to survive if they yeah. find themselves caught behind enemy lines, that sort of thing. Can you tell us a little sure. bit about what that work is and what do you find most gratifying about that? Yeah, I came to JPRA for my last assignment. So I've, I've been with JPRA since August of 99. Um, and you know, for, for those who don't know personnel recovery, JPRA is the DOD point of, they're the, the OPR, the Office of Primary Responsibility for personal recovery. Personal recovery is a wide gamut. It's, um, the, the end goal is to support anyone who, who is isolated, any military personnel, and we also support sometimes at the requests of, of other governmental agencies, uh, you know, like the State Department may say, hey, we've got this We've got a civilian person who is being held in, you know, Pakistan or Afghanistan, probably Afghanistan. Um, and so we're asking you to support them. Um, so that can happen too. But primarily the focus is on military. Any 
isolation could be you're shot down and you're isolated and you need to be recovered. Uh, that's happened mm -hmm. a number of times. You've been taken hostage. You are you have been detained by uh, a government that's not friendly to the United States. So all of those are isolation events. And JPRA supports people indirectly through whatever the command is in that region. For example, I was in Afghanistan in 2015 supporting U.S. forces in Afghanistan for PR events. Uh, luckily, we didn't have any. There were some Americans who were being detained in Afghanistan, in, uh, actually across the border in the in the that lawless region of Pakistan. And the reason they move people over there is because they know the American forces can go anywhere they want in Afghanistan at the time. So they always move them across the tri into the tribal region of Pakistan. Hmm. Um, but we do a whole group of things as, as the JPRA from training, which is what I've been involved in for the last 20 years, to battle staff preparation so that the commands have the staff to support PR events to integrating into exercises to train those, you know, the, the, the men and women who will go recover our folks, you know, making sure that they have all the training they need and the resources they need to do. And I don't think we provide resources, but the training and the education to do what they need to do and the exercises to practice that. Wow. So, I have so many questions and I, okay. I, I don't want you to, you know, talk about things you can't talk about or anything like that. But, but I am intrigued by this, you know, people who are in these incredibly challenging <clears throat> circumstances where they're kind of thrown back on themselves sure. um, to, to, to be resilient uh, and endure. Very much so. And for me, it goes, I mean, there are to some degree connections to campaigning and just when you're, when yeah. you're going through hard things and you have yeah. to, you you have to um, find sources of strength within yourself. Can you give us some sense of what's the advice? What's the what's the guidance for you know people yeah. who are enduring those situations? Well, for military people, I, I think the the biggest thing is uh, you have a contract with the U.S. government that you said that you would go in harm's way, and our end of that deal is we will support you. Now, you may not feel very supported, you know, when you're being held in a cave in somewhere or yeah. in Evan prison in in, you know, downtown Tehran or wherever it happens to be that you're being held. In fact, your captor wants you to believe you are being supported, you know, because they would like to exploit you for some for something. Sometimes it's as simple as the exploitation is we're just going to hold you. We're going to keep you alive. and We're going to ask the United States for 50 million dollars or the exploitation could be. You know, we're a nation that's kind of a conflict with the United States, and you are going to be the leverage to get these sanctions lifted or whatever it happens to be. I just right. watched a great documentary on HBO about the Iran hostage event, 1979-1980. They've, yeah. they've done a great job interviewing some folks, and, and that was all leverage. You know, that was, we have 52 Americans, we're, we're going to leverage the United States. Mm -hmm. So... If you, um, that's the resiliency that you just talked about, especially like comparing it to a campaign where you're going to have highs and lows, right? You're going to have some times when you feel like, you know, you've got all this wind at your back. I'm sure I've never been involved in a campaign, but I can imagine, you know, just, yeah. just having been a political, you know, a political nerd for a while. Right. Self-described right. political nerd. 
you're going to have amazing days on the campaign and you're going to have some absolutely crushing days where you feel like nobody's behind you and uh, the numbers are bad or whatever it happens to be, or you can't get the money raised, whatever happens to be. The resiliency is absolutely critical there. And, And I'll just put a plug in for that's where something like answering the call comes in to say, who, you know, what's at my core and, and uh, you know, to do the hard work and think about what is calling me to be here. You know, for, for military members, we want them to know, you know, going back to your question, we want them to know that they are supported, they're cared about, that we have this contract with them, that we ask them to live up to the code of conduct, this moral obligation uh, that that we have as a military, and in turn, they know that no stone is going to be left unturned to, to get them back. That might take longer than is comfortable sometimes, but that will be done. And even even for folks like Sergeant Bo Bergdahl, who you know, in his own activities, he will describe it left his post to try and call attention to what he thought was bad behavior or bad decision-making by his leadership, got immediately captured. I'll, I'll just say this for Bo because he was a resistor from the first moment. And there's a lot of bad press out there about Bo, about him collaborating and seeking to go join the Taliban. Well, you know, I'll just tell you that's, I've, I've met him and he's a person of honor. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he he resisted to the point where he was kept in a metal cage for the last four years of his, of his detention. Not a lot of people know that. Yeah, but it's it's unthinkable scenarios. The the people you're talking about and the, yeah. the situations they're in. It's, uh, yeah, if you want to know more about him, listen to the second ser- uh, second uh, season of se- the Serial podcast. The first one was huh. about I and. Uh, the guy who just got released in Baltimore yeah. from prison. Right. Yep. But the first, the second episode is all about Bo and they do a great job of telling his story. Oh, so interesting. Yeah. Um, and you know, I, I, I don't want to be seen as being cavalier about these situations that you're putting people in and how they might relate to a, a political campaign, which let's be clear <clears throat> is, is nothing like being held in a metal cage for four years. There's a, but it's a test. Uh, it's absolutely it's a, a test. test. Yeah. It, yes. But, go, um, but to your point, yeah. To, how does this influence your daily life? Like, do you find that being an expert in these principles and doing this work, how does it shape how you show up in your life? Oh, um, I mean, do you ever find yourself drawing on those principles or, or thinking about these are the things we teach and this is something I need to draw on now? Yeah. I, that's a great question, Max. I think, in the larger sense, every person has to assess how they deal with life struggles. And, and that has been an ongoing thing for me. I, I have what I would call a high negativity bias. <laughs> uh, I can look back at life and, and say that, that that has been something. I became a, a coach to largely figure out, you know, what's going on with me. Uh, like, mm. like a lot of coaches, like a lot of therapists, I think, get to that point. To, to do some internal look. And resiliency, especially going through the training program during COVID and um, really learning what resiliency looked like, seeing it in so many different people, uh, 
was huge. And there's been some real tests of that even over the last year uh, of resiliency. And so to answer your question, I hadn't thought about it that much in the practical application because as a trainer, you're on one side of things. I did think about it more when I went to Afghanistan, you know, because now you're, you're there and things are happening. Like we had some rocket attacks um, there. One rocket went through a building uh, that a bunch of people I knew and, and people I worked with were living in and locally nobody was injured because it didn't, the 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 arming mechanism didn't didn't work correctly. Wow! But it, it okay. went through yeah. a guy's room while he was asleep in his in his bunk. It, so imagine waking up and something just tore through your room and then is lodged right. <laughs> in the wall next to you. Yeah. And so those yeah. are the kind of things you're like, whoa, that's uh, it's real. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah. I think the my my journey has been more about I need to figure out how I can be resilient in the face of life's ups and downs that always come, you know, sure, whether, sure. whether it's personal, whether it's things outside, you know, that's where my resiliency and, and the work on that has come from. Yeah. So you already mentioned you're, you're a, a, a Goldman emotional intelligence coach. You got certified through that. So tell us a little bit, you know, how'd you find your way there? What led to that? And give us a little taste of, what you've learned, kind of what it's what it's about. Yeah, uh, I read Dan Goldman's article, "How to uh, What Makes a Leader," in the Harvard Business Review. I was like, "Holy cow! This is like this is like <laughs> the Rosetta Stone," you know. For for uh, maybe that's not a good analogy, but this is like this is it, you know. These things he's identified it, and <clears throat> so. Dan, Dr. Goldman wrote the book, Emotional Intelligence in 1995, based off the work of a couple of guys who had done a research paper before, but Dan really popularized it, wrote the book, wrote this article, which if you're going to read the book or the article, read the article because it's it's succinct and it's really well put together. Um, and, and it gives you all that you need to know about emotional intelligence. And he really set up that, that whole idea that being smart is good, but being emotionally smart and understanding yourself, self-awareness, self-management, you know, social awareness and relationship management. If mm -hmm. you if you get a pretty good grasp on those things, you're going to do so much better in relationships with people. Like we've all known really smart people that just don't seem to know how to talk yeah. to other people. Yeah. And, and um, so being smart has been the standard for so long and more and more people are realizing that high emotional intelligence coupled with being a smart person is really the key to success. And, and he's also Dan and others like uh, the, the people over at talent smart have done the studies to, to validate that, that, mm -hmm. that you have a much higher level of business success. You have a much higher level, really a personal success of, uh, within this. So uh, once I read that, I, I wanted to, was interested in becoming a coach. There's a bunch of different coaching programs out there, but I yeah, went there's with, a lot. <laughs> yeah, yep. yeah, as yep. you know, I, mm -hmm. I went with uh, the Goldman course. 
that um, I don't know that that exists anymore. There's been, uh, I now work with beyond emotional intelligence, beyond DI, which is a, is a Michelle Navarez founded that um, she worked with Dan running the, the certification program, but they've had a, a business split, an amicable business split. And so Michelle has beyond DI. Mm -hmm. And so I'm working as a coach and a faculty member with her to continue that work um, on a part-time basis. Great. Great. And I know you're also a teaching fellow for the True North Leadership uh, Program that was developed by Bill George, Harvard yeah. Business School professor, former CEO of Medtronic, and <clears throat> uh, wrote, a, wrote a great book about True North. Tell us a little bit about what that's what that's like. Yeah, I did that last year. Uh, they're getting ready to do it again this year. Uh, I, I did not go back as a teaching fellow this year. I would love to in the future. Um, I think Bill has done the same thing like, like Dan did. He's really figured it out. Like what makes a leader? So a lot of Dan's stuff is aimed towards um, leadership and business, but also personal. I mean, you're not going to, you're not going to succeed in leadership and in business unless you've got yourself figured out. And that's also Bill's message through the true North program. He just happens to be a great guy, a great thinker who, who did great work and who, and Bill will tell you, I, he interviewed a bunch of people and figured out what the common denominators were and talks about, okay, what's your path? What are your crucibles? What has made you who you are? And so to, to go and support that program in this beautiful campus, if you ever get a chance to go to 1440 Multiversity, and uh, it's between San Jose and Santa Cruz, it's in Scott's Valley. Uh, Bill, uh, Scott, I'm sorry, Scott Creens, who was the first CEO at Juniper, the, the router company, Scott and his wife built this campus and it is beautiful. It's new. I think the oldest building there may, maybe 10 years or so or less it's in the middle of the redwoods. So yeah. you go and you, you get, and as a teaching fellow, you lead a leadership circle and you, you just form these incredible bonds with people uh, over the, the week that you're there. The food is amazing. The campus is amazing. You, you just, you know, you're just in it with, with like-minded people who are yeah. there because they're interested in being, you know, just getting to be on a constant improvement process and to, and to lead and serve others. And that, that's, that's Bill's message is you, you serve others through leadership. And obviously I see how the theme connects with your, your whole yeah. career and your whole life. And, um, and I just, you know, I know Bill's work really focuses on this idea of crucible experiences yeah. and to know the work that you've done and to be able to kind of help people think about that and hold space around that. You, you have kind of a unique perspective on um, uh, the kind of crucible experiences people have been through and how to find meaning in them. Well, so, and everybody's got their own, right? Like what's yeah. a crucible experience to me, uh, you know, is going to be very different for anyone else. And that's the great thing is you get to meet people across the spectrum of business, a lot of education people there, which was mm -hmm. great to see. Um, the psychologist who was supporting it last year <clears throat> is a contractor uh, for the Ranger Regiment. And he and I would love to see more military folks get involved in True North and get that aspect and uh, 
And so that's something that we're working with because one of their lead faculty people is retired Air Force uh, General Dana Bourne, who was the first, mm. I think she was the first female commandant of the Air Force Academy, if I remember her bio correctly. And getting more military folks involved in that process uh, yep. or in that program and that leadership aspect. Sounds great. Sounds great. And I've, you know, I've heard about the fourteen forty multiversity. I have not been there, but I've seen some pictures and details. And <laughs> one day, I hope one day, it sounds yeah. like an incredible place. Go see yeah. the mother tree, the the thousand year old redwood, and give her a big hug. That's that. That's, wow. that's it's just it's beautiful. It's such a great place, and 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 I, I just have to give a shout out to Scott Crean for having that vision and devoting you know, basically his life's work to making this place where these amazing things can happen. And during COVID, when they weren't having any retreats at all, he and, and his wife, and it's a family affair. His wife, his wife, his wife was there one day and his daughter works there, but Scott opened it up to first responders and made sure that they were fed and supported. Yeah. And he's just such an awesome guy. Yeah. Can't say enough good yeah. about Scott Crean. And, and Bill George, yeah. Oh, 100%. Lives it every day. Love it. In fact, so, can, I, can I share? Yeah, can I share of a, course. <clears throat> Please. Uh, it's got some of the most profound things, and I use this all the time in my coaching, which is forgiveness is giving up hope of a different past. Mm. Because so many of us ruminate over mistakes we've made, and I, I, I use that. I don't know, weekly you know, yes. in coaching. It's a powerful idea. Yeah. yeah. Forgiveness is giving up hope of a different past. Just we've got to move on Let it go. and, and Let it go. forgive ourselves more times than not. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about new politics. So we're having this conversation because you're a, a answering the call facilitator. So you are using your coaching and facilitating expertise to guide our participants towards some greater inner clarity around their own sense of calling to serve. So do you remember how, how'd you hear about us and kind of what led you to raise your hand to apply to be a facilitator? Yes, uh, I was led to this through our mutual friend, Bela Shaw, who mm -hmm. was my meta coach my basically my supervisory coach through my emotional intelligence coaching program. Uh, Bela is probably the kindest, uh, one most wonderful person and currently is my part-time boss at Meru Health, where I also oh, nice. coach. Uh -huh. uh, but um, she's just an incredible human being who, yeah. because of my <clears throat> association with a military service, had worked as a facilitator for you before for new politics. I forget how she got to it, but she recommended it. And it's just, it's a great way to facilitate, to get to meet folks. And I will never run for office. I'm not, that has no interest to me. I would love to support a campaign if they need the kind of support I can provide. But I believe in this work so much because you know, like all of us, I see how this could be so instrumental to returning dialogue and civility and compromise to politics. You know, having people who put service first as opposed to self or to party. And and that's just uh it's it's so worth doing. And I'm I'm and I have to say, Max, I'm so excited. I'm, I'm a little 
I'm a little uh, scared. I've got such a big group this time, you know. A lot of folks a, this time. Yeah, we got a lot, a lot of folks, of folks up. like, yep. like uh-huh. double what what I had before. So it's going to be it's going to be like uh, having all a bunch of plates spinning in the air at once. But it's, I feel up to the challenge. <laughs> but I am yep. excited. excited we have so many folks who are uh, excited that we have so many folks raising their hand to to join in these programs. Absolutely, yeah. it's just it's just great that this message is getting out and that more and more people are drawn to it, whether they run want to run for office or whether they want to uh, to serve in a campaign. It's just exciting to see that people see this as as critical to our nation's future. I I think nothing less than that. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, I had forgotten about the Bella Shaw connection and my connection with her was I was invited to do some training for an organization called the Dalai Lama fellows, which was actually founded with the imprimatur of the Dalai Lama. Yes. It was social entrepreneurs from around the world. And not surprisingly, it integrated like a, a real focus on designing some kind of social action project and some real deep inner work. And I remember Bella was just a beautiful soul, just such depth and wisdom. And, and it's just kind of amazing that that experience leads to you coming into new <laughs> politics. And it's fun to see how all the, the threads come together. But I guess, you know, for folks who are thinking about answering the call, how would you describe what, what happens in that space? What do you see happening? What yeah, what, what answer the call does is it certainly we're not looking at the machinations of politics. We're looking at what is calling you to that. What's your where are you coming from internally with this? You know, really looking at your values. Um, we look at the, okay, what's, what's your mission that you want to accomplish? But also uh, one of the most powerful is that, um, the, that uh, gosh darn, uh, the, 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 the opposite mission. of the shadow mission. Thank the you. Shadow mission. Hey, yep. I was just yep. about to grab my pamphlet and look and yep. at can remember the name of it, but the shadow mission that the, what happens if I don't do this? I, I remember just how impactful it was to, to come up with my own shadow mission and say, holy cow, if I don't do this, then, then this happens. Yeah. And I, and I hope that makes a significant impact on a lot of people. And then going through that discussion and meeting people. And uh, we talked about this the other day when we had the facilitators, what, what, you know, is the defining moment. What do you always remember? Well, I always remember in, in both the cohorts I've done before, when people come together, when somebody identifies something they're struggling with, and then you, I just sit back as a facilitator because I've got five people with their hands raised to talk to them and say, hey, have you considered this? Have you thought about this? Just... This the synergy that gets created, the support that gets created. The I always end up a little, honestly, a little teary-eyed at the end of it because this group has gone from, you know, whatever it is, ten strangers to people who care about each other very much, even though they've never met in real life. And uh, that that's the magic of of this program is you really take time to think and to learn. And we and I've had two amazing guest speakers. Kiyomi was my guest speaker last time. Right. And, yep. Uh, mm-hmm. Kiyomi's like a, boy, it is. She's it a is, force of nature. I was going to say Kowalski. it, is, it yep. is a full, yep. full throttle with Kiyomi, but amazing. Yep. You know, she, she has an ability to bond people together. And, and she did that. People from a, across the spectrum were like, wow, she's the real deal. 
Yeah. And, uh, you know, uh, for listeners, Kiyomi Kowalski is she was in the Marine Corps and then chose to run a black woman chose to run for her school council for her community outside of L.A. and was the first woman of color to, to run for that. And um, and she attributes answering the call to kind of getting clear on the decision to make that happen. Yeah. And she's just a very powerful person. Yeah. And, and we need voices like Kiyomi's that that are that are there and that speak truth to power. What do you think it would do if we had more of these servant leaders in, in office? Oh, I, I alluded to it a little bit earlier. <clears throat> I think the toxic politics, you know, if I can recommend one book to everybody, read High Conflict by Amanda Ripley. Um, it's probably the best book to understand how our politics have gotten to where they are. Um, talks about in high conflict, which is not productive. Uh, there is the othering, which means that we're right, you're wrong, even to the point of the things you stand for are, and maybe you are evil or bad. Yeah, yeah we're seeing and a we've lot got, of that. We've gotten to a ton of that, and it's just not productive. We can, what we need to be is what she calls good conflict, where we have an end goal together. We may disagree, but we can work towards that goal. And, and we may not agree on everything that happens, but what's happened is you know, to where we've gotten today is the lack of ability to collaborate, the lack of ability to give and take, to compromise. And that has to happen. You know, it absolutely has and probably does happen. We don't see it as much, but each side postures to the degree, you know, it used to be that senators might be across the aisle from each other, but they had lunch together. They, right, they socialized right. together. They can't dare be caught doing that. Uh, you talk to um, to them today, and they they can't be seen with somebody from across the aisle, or it'll go on social media, and they'll get they'll get um, outflanked, either hard left or hard right of where they are, and that's too bad because we need those folks to talk to each other and work with each other. Yeah, we got to get away from the toxicity. So, to your question, more people being involved with answering the call more people doing this work, more people realizing that they have more in common with their fellow man or their fellow American than they have in disagreement. That can lead us towards a good conflict within our politics, which means that, you know, we've got a pretty broken system right now, but it yeah. can be, it can be healed and it can address what people's real needs are. It's not a perfect system, but it's a, pretty darn good system that's been around for a long time now. And, yep. and but it, 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 it's a need of some, some uh, revitalization. Yep. And th this is the solution. That's why I, I like devoting the time to, to work with this because I believe in it so fully, Max. Love it. Love it. So last question, if there are any servant leaders out there who are wondering about answering the call, they're wondering, should I step up and maybe serve through politics? What advice do you have for them? Uh, do, do the work and really look at what is calling you to this. You know, one of the things we talk about in answering the call is what are the temptations, right? And, and many times it's the power, it's the draw. Um, it, it, now it seems to be the association with, with certain people. And is that truly what your mission is in life? Um, how can you be true to yourself? You know, that do you need to be beholden 
to a certain cause or personality? Or can you go serve the people who are in your community and serve in their best interest? And can you tell the truth when you when maybe a lot of people who uh, are in your party are saying something that isn't necessarily true? Can you say the truth to that? And I'm talking about both mm-hmm. sides, not just one or the other. There's 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 extremes on both sides, and and the truth is not always within those extremes, or they're derivations of the truth, and then sometimes they're just not true at all. Can you stand up to that, even when it may mean that you're not, you know, you you don't get reelected or the party doesn't support you? Do you have that internal compass set to true north? And I'll go. So I'll go back to Bill George. <laughs> can, Love it. Can Love you survive it. that crucible? Fantastic. And uh, just thank you so much for sharing your time and talent with us. And you know, uh, just. I think the work that you have done around personal recovery, it's, I'm just grateful there, you know, people doing that for our military and the things you've seen and the people you've worked with, and then that you are bringing that wisdom for helping these folks, you know, in our programs to just do that, get really clear about what's your life's mission. What do you, what, you know, what, what is worth being courageous for and giving people space to find their own answers to that. Just so grateful for your partnership in Thank this you. work. And Thank you, Max. I appreciate Thank you sharing you. your perspective here. Totally my honor to, to be with you today. You are one of my heroes, by the way, doing the work that you're Thank doing. You. <laughs> yeah, and you need a good shout out, just like Bill George and Scott Creens and all, all and Dan Goldman, all those people, because you are the glue that keeps us together, you and Fiona and all the staff at New Politics. The rest doing, of the team here. Yeah, doing doing really, really important work to, to help us be a whole nation that works together. We can disagree. I, I, I don't I expect that we'll disagree, but we can do it in a much healthier way. And this is the way that we get to that. Love it. Love it. Awesome. Well, John, thank you for for sharing your perspective. We're happy to lift your voice up and appreciate your making time to be with us. My honor, Max. Thank you. This has been the New Politics Podcast. I'm your host, Max Clow. Thanks for listening, and I hope you join us for our next episode when we meet another servant leader who has chosen to step up and serve through politics. If you want to learn more about New Politics and the candidates that we support, please check us out online at newpolitics.org. If you're a fan of what we're doing with this podcast, I invite you to become a subscriber and give us a positive rating. It's a small act that helps us out in a big way. And if you believe in the work that we're doing at New Politics, please consider donating via our website to support our efforts to revitalize American democracy. I'll leave you with this question, as always. How do you feel called to serve at this critical moment for our nation? Thanks for joining. See you next time.